The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the Frankenmuth Historical Association. Some episodes may contain subjects that are uncomfortable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and guten tag, and welcome to Historians and Lederhosen. I'm Garrett. I'm Nathan. And I'm Malcolm. We are three historians from the Frankenmuth Historical Association, located in Frankenmuth, Michigan. The association owns and operates a seven-gallery museum, a historical log house, Fisher Hall, and a collection of over 30,000 artifacts. Check those out at frankenmuthmuseum.org or right on our Facebook page at Frankenmuth Historical Museum. This podcast will tell the stories of Michigan's Little Bavaria to the real Bavaria and anything in between. Be sure to tune in every other week and listen to the three of us and our guests as we dive into the wide world of history. Auf Wiedersehen. Welcome, everyone, back to another episode of Historians and Lederhosen. I'm Nathan, joined by my wonderful co-host, Malcolm and Garrett. Hello. We're- Hi. <laughs> We're really excited for today. Uh, today, we get to explore prohibition, a topic that's of everyone's interest. Everyone loves talking about prohibition and hearing fun little stories and things <laughs> like that. So we're going to share some of those with you today. Um, we're going to shine a spotlight on a lot of aspects of it, from the big picture to the little picture here in Frankenmuth, um, and go from there. So, Garrett, why don't you go ahead and get, a, get us started? Give us kind of a broad overview of like prohibition. How did it happen? How did it come to be? Right. So one of the people associate prohibition with the early 20th century, like Al Capone and all of that. But the actual movement of temperance that led into prohibition is much older and can be traced back to honestly when the Puritans came to the United States. But more more like concretely, it came out of the Second Great Awakening in the 1820s and 30s. And the Second Great Awakening was a huge religious movement that was characterized by evangelical Protestantism, and they focused on massive tent revivals. So they'd go from town to town in rural America, setting up one one character or like one charismatic preacher would set up a large tent and bring all these people in. And the whole focus of this was that God created people with free will and you can choose to live morally. You can choose to live without sin. And due to this, a lot of people would be wrapped up in this massive like tent culture, this watching people like cast off sin and be reborn essentially that they went out into the world expecting perfection out of everyone around them. And one of the biggest perfectionist like movements out of the revivals was temperance and living perfectly, living without sin, not going to the saloon with your buddies and getting drunk and walking home. It was just living like without sin. And this was pre-Civil War. And during before then, a couple of states started to adopt prohibition laws. Maine was the first state that um, actually fully banned the sale of alcohol, which luckily for three weeks from now, they have not. So I'll be having a great time in Maine. (laughs) But um, following the Civil War, there was another great rise in evangelical Protestantism. And this was also characterized by a growing urbanization of the United States. And the evangelical Protestantism railed against... um, the urban lifestyle, which was a lot of people working in factories and having really not great lives. So they would drown their sorrows in alcohol and these more middle-class and wealthy evangelical Protestants who were able to work jobs that weren't so demanding. saw all these people going to the 
saloons in town and they were like, this is completely immoral. Why would you live like this? And they started to view this as ungodly and immoral and started calling for greater temperance. And um, these movements attracted women because they were affected most acutely when you had a husband that was working in a factory or working manual labor and would go out with his friends to the saloons when they get paid only like a dollar a day. If you waste that dollar at the saloon, that affects your family, that breaks apart your family. So women were really attracted to these movements. And then also factory owners, because this was this was starting to, or this started to affect the way that factory workers functioned. And this was happening during a time when capitalism was really ramping up in the United States and they wanted more production so they could make more money. And if your workers are constantly shoving their arm into a grinder because they're a little too drunk, things aren't going to go well. Things, <laughs> things aren't going to go well. So in this American economy that was calling for longer work days, if you had, if you had workers that weren't hungover or, weren't, or were more reliable because they couldn't be drinking alcohol all the time, it was better for the factory owners. So a lot of these more upper-class people, I'm not characterizing as there was no lower-class people that that wanted temperance or prohibition, but the upper classes were really pushing for this because it benefited them most. And beyond like the religion and preacher aspect, this was a time when America was very skewed Protestant, where all these, um, most Christians in the United States were Protestants, so they'd view some Catholic immigrants or even just Catholics as immoral due to their association with alcohol. And during the 19th century, some of the German immigrants, many of them were coming from Bavaria, which is the Catholic portion of Germany. And on top of the German association with beer culture, the they kind of just viewed them as outsiders and they viewed them as immoral because they were focused on beer. So they had like the double whammy of being hated because they were Catholic and being hated because they drank beer and then also that uh, so or that uh, applied to Irish immigrants as well. So the first kind of aspect of the origin of prohibition comes from that religious movement and also kind of some nativist sentiment, some um, American Protestant like superiority they viewed the Catholics and some some of the cultures that were coming to the United States who had a greater drinking culture they viewed them as lesser. So that was an easy way for them to just kind of justify wanting prohibition. Yeah, I really like how you bring up like the Second Great Awakening and I just in history if there's any like movement that impacts other movements like it's probably the Second Great Awakening like it impacted right. the women's movement and impacted prohibition like we talked about it impacted um abolition like right. just lit like a new fire under these movements and like I think they actually used a term um for when these revivals kind of swept through cities and I forget if this was First Great Awakening or Second Great Awakening, but it paints a good picture, so I'm going to use it. Um, they called them burned-over districts, right. essentially. Like, that, this, these revivals just swept through cities and towns and sort of brought a new fire, essentially, to these movements and to these groups of people. So Right. And so that, that kind of origin is kind of more the ideological origin of what, what temperance and prohibition was. And I'm going to focus on a couple of more, like, hands hands on the ground, like grassroots movements that um, really focused on pushing this prohibitionist agenda of trying to ban the sale and consumption of alcohol in the United States. 
And um, as a native Michigander, it's great to know that most of these organizations originated in Ohio. So if you if you enjoy alcohol, you can blame Ohio for prohibition. Boo. <laughs> so the Michiganders need an excuse. <laughs> Anytime we can throw Ohio under the bus. Right. We're if, we, do it. if we have historical <laughs> reasoning to not like Ohio, we'll take it. Um, so the first big one was the Anti-Saloon League. And this is by far not the greatest or like the largest um, prohibitionist movement. It's just one of the more concrete ones that really helped push the law through the American um, political system. But they were founded in 1893 in Oberlin, Ohio, and were a nonpartisan group focused on the single issue of prohibition. So this wasn't a Republican-Democrat issue. It was just a group of essentially concerned citizens that wanted to end the sale of alcohol. And it began as a state organization in Ohio, boo. Um, but after 1895, <laughs> blossomed into a national organization. And they began by setting up offices throughout Ohio, of mainly, in, mainly in Columbus, boo, Ohio State. <laughs> um, but spread across the nation by using churches as their meeting houses to gather resources to end the sale of alcohol. And on its 20th anniversary in 1913, they held this big rally and they declared that they were going to push for prohibition through a constitutional amendment that would ban the sale of alcohol in all, all of the states. And in 1916, along with other temperance movements, one of the big ones that I'll mention in just a minute, they oversaw the, the amendment passing through both houses of Congress with a two-thirds majority. Um, and then the second big group that really kind of pushed for prohibition was the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And as I said earlier, women were most acutely affected by the the negative aspects of alcohol. And because of this, along with the Second Great Awakening, they used this as kind of their like driving fire to start a large women's movement that spread far beyond prohibition, but prohibition was that first issue that kind of brought them together and allowed them to talk about other issues that, as women, they collectively dealt with. And it became one of the leading feminist organizations. It was founded in 1874 in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, This is not a a thing I'll boo Ohio for. (laughs) But after, um, after the original president of the organization was ousted by Francis um, Willard, the union started to take on a lot more issues than just prohibition. They started to address um, like polygamy and they started to address women's suffrage and they banded together as this big feminist movement that was pushing for greater rights for women in the United States. But after her death in 1898, the group applied Christian values and just kind of really honed in on that uh, issue of prohibition. And after um, the amendment became law in Eight, or 1919, the membership of the union kind of fell off, but the Women's Christian Temperance Movement exists to this day. And then the last big thing before I'm going to hand this over to Malcolm to explain a, an amendment that I don't fully understand <laughs> um, is World War I, because after the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, President Wilson instated a temporary prohibition on alcohol production in order to maintain American grain supplies in order to produce food. And this was incredibly popular because it proved to the temperance movement, not only after the amendment passed through Congress in 1916, but it proved to them that prohibition was achievable. 
And uh, that same year in 1917, when President Wilson instigated the temporary prohibition, Congress submitted the 18th Amendment to the states for ratification. And just one final issue I mentioned a little bit earlier, but World War I saw a lot of anti-German sentiment in the United States. And like I was explaining earlier, this sentiment didn't grow out of World War I. This sentiment had been there throughout the all the years that German immigrants were coming to the United States. But World War I simply gave Americans a justifiable reason to discriminate against Germans. We were at war with their country. So during this time, a lot of people saw, or a lot of states saw any um, streets or buildings that were named after German families being renamed. And it was just a time when Americans saw discriminating against Germans as a way to show their patriotism, I guess. So with this, I'm just going to hand it over to Malcolm real quick to just explain how um, prohibition became a law in the United States. Yeah. Uh, Nathan, do you want to chat about just Frankenmuth in general first, maybe? I'll touch on it real quick. And then I can kind of do the more before and after. Yeah, of course. So um, like Garrett was saying, we have all these groups, right, and all these sort of movements and behind the scenes things happening that are pushing um, more politicians and more groups to push for a prohibition amendment to make the sale of alcohol illegal. And so that eventually happens on January 16th, 1919, um, 1919, the 18th amendment was passed. Um, and so like, like I just said, it made the sale of alcohol illegal. It didn't necessarily make drinking alcohol illegal. Um, it just made it harder to get right. Right. Um, that is if you were in maybe a bigger town like Chicago or something like that. There might be more police sort of to um, reinforce the law, right? But if you were in a little German town like Frankenmuth, things looked a little bit different. Um, So in Frankenmuth, there were actually kind of two main ways that people sort of went around prohibition, right? Remember, you can't sell alcohol itself. You can't sell its like liquid form. But you could sell what people call malt extract. So there's like two different forms of extract. There's like dry extract, which is this very fine powder, or there's like a liquid extract. Um, Some brewers still use this today to make their beer and everything. I'm not a brewer myself, so apologies if I'm butchering the brewing process here. But essentially, different stores and even restaurants in town would sell this malt extract that people could then take home and make their own beer with it, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, just think... Um, some people might have been bringing all kinds of malt extract back and like brewing it in big metal tubs or maybe a bathtub or something like that. It wasn't always the most sanitary, um, kind of gross in many ways, but um, stores would sell malt extract, right? Um, <laughs> it's funny. I actually found some images of like old malt extract cans. I think we, we have some in our collection too mm-hmm. floating around, but I don't know if I've noticed one of these like warning labels on them. Um, some images you find online, they have warning labels of like, um, do not add yeast and water. Like, otherwise, it, this will create alcohol. <laughs> it's like, like, do not do this, but this is all you can do with this. So here you go. It's like adding like the, it's the side of like the Crisco that has the cookie recipe. It was essentially like that. You were buying malt extract and they were giving you the recipe to make beer. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Exactly. No, it really was. Um And so they could not only sell the malt extract, right, but many businesses still chose to keep selling alcohol itself. Um, And so there's actually, we have a couple like legends or rumors, if you will. Um, One of them, which I'll highlight, is 
uh, a tourist sort of comes into Frankenmuth, right, during Prohibition, and he asks, where can I get a beer in town? And one of the locals points to the church steeple, St. Lawrence's church steeple, and goes, anywhere but there. Um, so that gives you an idea, right, <laughs> that you could still get beer anywhere in Frankenmuth. You just kind of had to know what to do or where to go. Um, it's kind of true to this day. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so... There were a couple places in town, one of them being Zender's, actually. Um, so if you've ever been to Frankenmuth or had a chicken dinner, you've either been probably to Bavarian Inn or to Zender's, um, which both of these places are involved in this next story here. Um, so Zender's, like I said, along with many other businesses, they still served beer. You just had to know what to say. Um, they had a specific code word that was hot tea. <laughs> so if you went into Zender's and you went to the bar and you ordered hot tea, they knew that meant to pour you a beer, and they would. They'd kind of do it discreetly. You'd take it back to your table. Nobody would know, right? Well, one day on July 30th, 1930 to be exact, um, a U.S. Treasury agent stopped in for lunch at Zender's, and he ordered his usual when he was on a road trip, ordered a nice sandwich, and you guessed it, a hot tea. Um, a literal hot tea. A literal hot tea. That's what he wanted. And he was maybe a little disappointed. I don't know. <laughs> um, he might have been excited too. I don't know. But either way, he ended up reporting it. So, <laughs> you know, he's probably, he was probably from the South where like Could've an been. iced tea versus a hot tea. And yeah. So that's why he felt the need to make that distinction. That's Whereas up been, here yeah. and, you know, in the North, um, in the Mideast, here, Midwest, pardon me. Um, <laughs> You know, tea is is always hot. Yeah, we right. would specify like an iced tea um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as a default. Um, yeah, it's so very interesting. Yeah, I'd be interested to look back at like the verbiage over time and see if that mm-hmm. changed or if that was a very unique Southern thing. That's that's fascinating. Um, but so he reports it, and within a few hours, we have a lot of law enforcement agents, uh, state police, local officers. They all swoop down on Zenders, um, and they raid not only Zenders, but also the Fisher Hotel across the street, which today is now Bavarian Inn, right? So they raid essentially both Zenders and Fisher, and what they find is four dozen quarts of beer. So what's that, 12 gallons? Four dozen? You're asking the wrong We're person. not mathematicians <laughs> here. <laughs> Quart. Quarter, yeah, you have to, right? You have yeah, to yeah. do the math before we start recording, Nathan. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, Un- unprepared. I was, again. I was still trying to figure out four dozen quarts. <laughs> Picture twelve gallons. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. I think, hopefully. So, uh, the owners then, after they found this, William and Emily Zender. Um, and then Herman and Lydia Fisher, they were actually arrested and taken to the Saginaw County Jail for a night. Um, they ended up having to go to court for all of this. And normal fines at this time were typically like one to $200. Like still a decent chunk of change, but nothing like overwhelming, right? Especially um, for people that were very influential in a community. And this was their first time offense, mm-hmm. Um well, the first time they were caught anyway, right? <laughs> um, so it was a bit of a surprise when the district judge ended up, he was kind of fed up at this point with prohibition and all these violations. He said, enough is enough. I'm going to make an example out of somebody. Uh, he had an extra grind. Yeah. And so he finds Zenders and the numbers, I found two different sources that kind of contradict each other, but I'm going to give you kind of an average estimate of it. So he ended up finding Zenders $8,000 and Fisher's $10,000. In 1930? In 1930. Oh, my 
gosh. When he would have expected, you know, a couple hundred, maybe a few hundred dollar fine at that point. Wow. Well, you got to remember, too, this is during the Depression. <laughs> like, yeah. This is the beginning right. of the Depression yeah. when, oh, my God. This is easily six figures. I'd have to run it through a calculator or something. But um, at this point, that $10,000 fine was the highest paid fine during Prohibition in history. Wow. So pretty wild. Um, it ended right up taking, here in Frankenmuth. Yeah, right here in Frankenmuth. <laughs> Um, so it took years for the Zender family <laughs> to finally pay off this fine. Um, they eventually decided to allow treasury agents essentially to chop up this beautiful kind of hand-carved bar that they had, um, and they lowered the fine to $3,000. Mm. So this was like, they decided to do it because they, they needed to save the money somewhere. This yeah. was an oh abnormal, substantial amount of money. Um, but it was a hit to their pride that they had to let them kind of come in and destroy this bar, right? That's Especially so for a little German community. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, That's about $150,000, like, in today's money. Wow. wow. That's crazy. For a first-time offense like that. Hmm. So, yeah, that's a little bit about uh, Frankenmuth and kind of local stories that we know mm-hmm. about Prohibition. Um So I found a lot of those really cool, too. I, I usually share a lot of those on our guided tours as well, and people just love them so it's interesting uh, it's interesting that like just chopping up a bar could lower it by yeah. so much like like what was going on with those like law enforcement agents that they were like i'm just so angry that chopping up a bar would be so nice <laughs> i'll give you such a discount if you let me just destroy this well well that goes back to the point where like the judge and federal authorities at this point were trying to make an example out of them right yeah um and they wanted this sort of publicized and they wanted people to see this bar being taken apart and whether it was sawed apart or hammered apart, I don't know, but taken out of the building, like they wanted to make a scene of it. Well, and I guess to be fair, prohibition had been in effect for what, 11 years at that yeah. point. So it's not yeah. like this is brand new. So I no. could, I could understand their, fr- I don't agree with it at all, but um, it's their also- frustration of like 11 years in and they yeah. still have to deal with this. And the, and the, the fact that they got caught so red handed right. and like, you know, <laughs> just like, uh, served be- a beer to a U.S. Before Treasury Ma- agent. <laughs> Before Malcolm <laughs> runs into like the the national stories, I we always like associate prohibition with like Chicago and Al Capone and like all of mm-hmm. like the bootleggers. But Michigan was actually a really like influential state during prohibition. Um, I can't. I'm blanking on the name of the Supreme Court case, but it was the story of bootleggers like cutting out the upholstery of their cars to put beer into like the the seating, and there was a. Um, they were being tracked by like federal agents and on the highway between Detroit and Grand Rapids, they got pulled over and they were like searching through their car and like pulled out the upholstery. And that's one of the cases that now like is set, set the precedent for search Search and seizure and um, like in car searches and stuff like that. But it's interesting because again, you, you associate Chicago and these bigger cities with like, prohibition but michigan was just like in the middle of it all like (laughs) ruining everything for everyone (laughs) (laughs) that's why i like michigan it's got its own it's got its own personality it doesn't take anything (laughs) sitting down you know michigan's always going to push back a little bit right (laughs) especially when ohio's making trouble for it (laughs) (laughs) we'll fight a war All right, so I'll turn it over to you, Malcolm. Give us uh, some kind of fun stories about Prohibition. Tell us. Sure. I mean, I, I think I'll kind of just uh, bookend the history a little bit, Perfect. if you will, because Gary kind of alluded to you know how Prohibition actually legally went into effect. So for kind of just common knowledge, to be able to 
add an amendment or literally ratify the Constitution is not an easy task. It takes tremendous, one, public support and politics political support as well. Right. So what they had to do was they had to, um, as Garrett alluded to, um, pass a piece of legislation through the House and the Senate. So the way that was done was um, the Volstead Act. So the Volstead Act was proposed by a Minnesotan, um, Minnesotan, right? Yeah. Yeah, Minnesotan um, legislator named um, something or other Volstead. And it was uh, the legislation that would then go through the House, had to be voted on um, two-thirds in the House, and in the Senate it passed that. But then it also had to be ratified by the states. And um, when there's an amendment to to the Constitution, again, basically two-thirds, so 36 states have to ratify a decision. So this is why something like the EPA, the equal... um, ERA, ERA, equal rights sorry, amendment. the EPA, the Equal Rights Amendment is still up in the air. It's never been ratified by enough states. I think it's missing like three states to ratify right now. Mm-hmm. So you don't need all fifty, but you do need thirty-six. Um, so um, that's basically how it came to be. And in the Volstead Act, um, again, too, because it's not like Congress can just say we're going to do this. They have to have a piece of legislation. It's not dissimilar to like the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court can't just say we're making this decision that the law is changing. They have to be presented with a case strong enough to overturn precedent and change. Right. So again, something has to be brought to them, and then they have to do something with it. So that's basically how the 18th Amendment got passed um, with the Volstead. Act in 1919, uh, which created prohibition in the United States. Now, interestingly, the IRS was the first to be actually charged with enforcement. It was up to the IRS to enforce prohibition, but they very quickly realized that um, a lot of Americans were not going to accept this. So the power actually got transferred to the Justice Department, who then created the Bureau of Prohibition, specifically to enforce and handle prohibition in the United States. So obviously this gave rise to bootlegging. <laughs> um, interesting enough about the Volstead Act is that it didn't actually make the consumption of alcohol illegal. It just made the sale and manufacturing of it illegal. Now, there was a few loopholes within that, which uh, people did take advantage of notably. In the Volstead Act, doctors were actually still allowed to offer medicinal whiskey. <laughs> um, and of course, sacramental wine was also still allowed. Oh, I read with the whiskey, it was like you could get essentially you could get like a fifth or something like every three days or seven days or something. Oh yeah. Like it that. was like obscene. Like, like, yeah. Oof. You got a lot. <laughs> yeah. Like how much, how much medicine you need there, bucko. <laughs> um, a lot. And and it's also worth noting, too, that um, it didn't put a ban on any previously created alcohol, too. So if you had if you had a liquor cabinet at home that was full before this went into effect, that was fine. You were allowed to drink all that. You just couldn't buy or make any more after that. Mm. Oh, so how many people were then putting, like, dates before Prohibition started yeah, on or liquor ripping bottles? it off? I was, so they yeah, I was just tell, wondering, like, yeah. because, like, the, the IRS, like, enforcing this law is just insane to me. But then I started yeah. thinking about it, because the law was against, like, the sale and manufacturing, so they're going through business records. That's yeah, what they're yeah. trying to go through. That, that was the thought there originally, <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. Just picturing, like, financial officers. Just an like, accountant, like, skinny <laughs> glasses going into <laughs> knocking bar. on the door. Excuse Seems me? Seems to be that you're making alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed you got a lot of malt extract. Um, 
seeing a significant, uh, you know, it's separate company also buying a lot of yeast. <laughs> like, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> um, but yeah, as we said, you know, uh, uh, Garrett's mentioned Capone a couple times. So obviously this, uh, the prohibition gave a huge rise to a bootlegging uh, criminal industry, basically. Um, the likes of Al Capone, who earned uh, an estimated $60 million through bootlegging in Chicago. But the uh, the downside of this, obviously, was that it also gave rise to gang wars. Different gangs fighting over territories to be able to manufacture alcohol. Obviously, this was happening in much more densely populated urban areas than the more rural areas, but there was plenty of bootlegging going on in rural areas. There still is today. Because, um, you know, bootlegging isn't just the, um, the manufacturing of alcohol. It's also the illegal process of manufacturing alcohol. Even right. today, with prohibition being lifted, you have to have licenses, you have to have health and safety, all these kinds of things. So, one looking of, does go on one today. of the greatest television shows moonshiners there you that, go that's all about bootlegging and making <laughs> illegal moonshine exactly <laughs> exactly they're you know um the um the fda has a bunch of regulations osha all that kind of stuff so um where where this finally comes to a head is with the effects of the great depression throughout the 1930s fdr actually campaigned on ending prohibition at that point Especially, um, the the public just wasn't behind it anymore. It had gotten pushed through rather fast, and and the public didn't see the point in it. Um, people were depressed, and they needed to, an ability to take the edge off a little bit. Um, it also really tarnished a lot of jobs. I mean, the alcohol industry, as we know, produces so many jobs and so much commerce just with the raw ingredients, um, the the transportation of those ingredients, the transportation of the final product, the making of the final product, the purchasing of the, like, it's a huge, right. it's a huge industry. So FDR really campaigned on saying we should end this to help boost the economy so that we can get jobs and, you know, commerce going again. So FDR obviously won and um, proposed and passed and passed the 21st Amendment in 1932, which would uh, repeal the 18th Amendment. Utah was actually the uh, 36th state to ratify in 1933, and that's what... That's fascinating. Kicked, yeah, Utah. Utah. Yeah, would I thought ratify. Utah would have been... Yeah, so given the history that we've <laughs> already discussed, especially early on, isn't that fascinating? And also just Utah, like, yeah. like Mormonism, literally, their religion is... Ba- er, part of their doctrine is based on banning the consumption of alcohol like they're, they're I think I think they were just holding out to be that 36 state. They're like <laughs> they, we they, want they we were want that out. title. There was just a group out. of bands they were around like, like hey would it be nuts if we <laughs> They're like you know what if Mormons oppose this everyone should oppose this. <laughs> 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 yeah, so just kind of funny. So interestingly, um fun fact, so the 21st amendment is the only amendment of the Constitution that vetoes a previous amendment. It's the only time ever that an amendment has been put forth that took away rights, and then another amendment was reinstilled those rights, basically. So guaranteeing the right to Americans to produce and consume alcohol. So here's a fun little question for you, because I had this question while I was doing it. If you basically create an amendment that overrides a previous amendment, what happens to the numbering system? Does the 18th Amendment just stay there and then with like a little footnote that says, oh, C21st, or does it get removed and all the numbers shift back? Do you guys know? I'll let Garrett answer. Malcolm and I kind of so, talked about this beforehand a little bit. I've constantly, because it, it comes into a really big, like, with a lot of issues in American politics today, we talk about how many times the Constitution's been ratified, like when I'm talking with friends, or not ratified, amended, and I talk to friends and I'm like, you know, since the passage of the Constitution, we've added only 17 amendments because the first 10 came with the came mm-hmm. with the Constitution. 
And if you really think about it, we've only amended the Constitution 15 times. It's not been 17 because two of the amendments are about the same thing and one's doing it and then undoing. <laughs> so it was taken back. <laughs> so I think like the numbering stays the same and it's just kind of like a goofy little historical record of That's like, correct. like, hey, we at one point we wanted to do this, mm-hmm. but later on we were like, eh. Yep, so it does not change the numbering system. Um, still to this day, the 18th Amendment is the Prohibition Amendment, and mm-hmm. you, if you just stop reading there, <laughs> um, you're missing a lot of stuff, but <laughs> you have to keep reading two more amendments down. Oh, in American, I like, can't um, sell alcohol. <laughs> in like U.S. history tests or like just any government class where you have to like label amendments or just remember mm-hmm. them, the easiest way, those are the two easiest amendments to remember because mm-hmm. the it's the two drinking ages, 18 mm-hmm. and 21. Oh, hello. I never, oh, I never yeah. made that connection either. That is funny. <laughs> because at the time of like prohibition, like drinking age was 18. Was 18. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's hilarious. Wow. Oh, that's funny. Um, but yeah, just kind of a, a an interesting little historical footnote. If 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 Congress does make an amendment that um, erases a previous amendment, the numbering system doesn't change. It stays there. You just have to make sure that the judge has read the whole thing <laughs> and didn't yep. stop it. <laughs> Be some arbitrary it, number. I only made it to the 18th Amendment. I didn't really read before this. <laughs> case yeah. <laughs> what do you mean the women are voting <laughs> um so so uh going on from that here's some just more fun facts about prohibition um again uh the the big one that i think is probably the one people don't realize is that drinking wasn't made illegal drinking was legal it's just manufacturing was illegal in the sale um interestingly enough the booze cruise started during prohibition in coastal states because uh you just had to get on a boat go outside of it yep go into the international waters and the you most could, dangerous um, place in the world you can drink the ocean dry as it were so. good, good old international waters gotta love them um so yeah the 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 proud american tradition of the booze cruise started during prohibition um uh, we already kind of mentioned kind of like the medicinal whiskey, uh, sacramental wine and fun stuff like that. Um, interestingly, Mississippi didn't end prohibition until 1966. It took another 33 years for Michigan to um, officially end prohibition statewide, at least. Wow. Um, but on that <laughs> note, today there are actually 83 dry counties in uh, in the United States, so counties are still able to declare themselves dry. Um, most states have it, you know, um, have left it up to the counties and sometimes even the towns um, on rare occasions. But you know, eighty three counties doesn't sound like a lot, right? Like America's a pretty big place. Um, that's you know barely two um, counties per state. But if you think about it, uh, if you crunch the numbers, those 83 counties actually account for 1.4 million people. So 5% of the United States lives, uh, of the United States population lives in dry counties. How many of them are in Utah? <laughs> you know, uh, we were actually looking at a map and a, and, a, and a significant amount of them are actually right along the Bible Belt. That's in there's that's like what, eight counties in Texas. I remember. I think there was only like one actually in Utah. Like, I think or like that's, just a, uh, that's like a, one of those states where you don't need a law to just know not to do it. Essentially, yeah. I think in, it, the yeah the kind of the the local dogma. Is one of the one of the most interesting like things that I've always noticed because when I was going to school in North Dakota and like both North Dakota and Minnesota have kind of strange alcohol laws mm-hmm. of North or Minnesota. You can't sell it on Sundays. I think North Dakota, you can't sell it on Sundays. And then there's also time, like certain times of day yeah. that you can sell mm-hmm. them. It's like on, on off sale. 
Yeah, there, there's a lot of counties like that where it's like, yeah, no Sundays. Um, you can't buy past like two o'clock on a Saturday or yeah. four o'clock on a Thursday. Like, yeah, it's, you have to buy liquor somewhere else than beer sometimes. Yeah, right. they separate it all because out. Yeah, I was when I've brought like friends from North Dakota, Minnesota to Michigan. They've been absolutely baffled by the idea that like every end cap at a grocery store is filled with alcohol. Like yeah. there, you'll be in like the freezer section, and there'll be like an entire end cap filled with like vodka bottles, and they'll be like, "That would never happen" because they have separate liquor stores attached mm-hmm. there. Out, mm-hmm. well, They're that's like, and that's how it works in Canada too. Canada is just starting to change that around, specifically in Ontario. So, <laughs> I mean. I, it's almost childish compared to what you can do in Michigan. It's crazy. I bring Canadians over here and I take them to like a liquor store or a grocery store. They're just like, oh my God. Like, you can, you can <laughs> get liquor anywhere. It's just all there. It's like, yeah. Just, just <laughs> Like we don't even have like half gallons <laughs> in Canada. So it's Jeez. like you see that much for like $22 and the they're just handle. like, what? <laughs> like, even with the exchange rate, it's like a third of the price. It's ridiculous. Um, before we move on, I just want to share a couple um, other. There was a lot of myths and a lot of uh, rumors and uh, albeit maybe propaganda circulated about alcohol during and leading up to prohibition. So I just wanted to share a couple of, with, a couple of these with you because I just thought they were hilarious. One rumor was that alcohol turned your blood to water. Another was that wine was made with cockroaches. What? <laughs> <laughs> Drinking alcohol could actually make your brain catch fire. Catch fire. Catch fire. So your, <laughs> your skull would just be on fire. <laughs> Um, another rumor was that your liver, um, drinking alcohol could cause your liver to grow to 25 pounds. That'd be a problem. Yeah. That yeah. It'd be like, a problem. I, you know, I can imagine like if someone <laughs> believed that, I just was like, yeah, no, we need to get rid of this thing. Like this is bad. Like, I don't want to be walking around with like two bowling balls inside <laughs> of my kit. <laughs> like, um, and the last, which was kind of hilarious, uh, was that, uh, if you drank alcohol around someone that was a pregnant, that the smell could actually harm the baby. Secondhand odor could harm. That's uh, so funny with how long infants. it took people to figure out that secondhand smoke was harmful. Yeah, <laughs> but there was a rumor out there that just yeah, just smelling alcohol. Like if a pregnant woman just smelled alcohol, it could hurt the baby. That was that wow. was one of the rumors out there. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, and you know, it, it, it definitely the whole subject of alcohol prohibition definitely, especially now, I think brings up some very interesting parallels to the marijuana um, illegality and how that's being handled because it's basically being done in reverse. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, marijuana has been illegal for um, so many years right. here in the states, but now the states are kind of you know the individual states are taking back and um, making it legal, and a lot of the same things we're seeing the same things too. I mean, DC for the longest time has decriminalized marijuana. It's legal to smoke it in DC. It's illegal to buy it. Sure, you can't obtain it, you, no. but if you have it, <laughs> have it's, fun. It's always been so interesting because I've taken a lot of classes around the Civil War era in during along with the abolition movement, people were always calling on the national government to ban or like use their powers to abolish slavery because of like the interstate commerce act. But like by decriminalizing, making it legal to smoke in DC, you can then, even if you go and buy it elsewhere, you can be prosecuted because you're taking it across state lines. Mm -hmm. Like it's interesting, like, because people, it's it's such a, it's such like a, a small like step because there's still ways to get in trouble. It's always just interesting because I, again, from my time of going to school in North Dakota, it was very illegal in North Dakota. If you got caught with it in North Dakota, you were screwed. You were 
minor in possession, like whatever you were going to court, but it was decriminalized in Minnesota. So if you, if you wanted to do something, you just go across the border. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's interesting too, because a lot of the research on, um, the, prohibition of marijuana actually stems out of the prohibition of alcohol. It was a lot of, um, you know, um, prohibition agents that were working under prohibition that then when prohibition was repealed, they didn't know what to do. Um, and so a lot of them started mm. propaganda campaigns and, mm-hmm. um, you know, information campaigns that, uh, to try to criminalize marijuana so that then their job could be going after, Marijuana, so it's you know it's all interesting. It's all very connected, and yeah. the parallels are interesting, especially because one one movement was very much birthed out of the other, of movements that have been almost you know a cent over two centuries old now at this point. It speaks to the power of like advertising, not just the you know these larger social movements that we talk mm-hmm. about and and things like that. But when you mentioned like cigarettes, I was like, oh, that is fascinating. Like in the this- Women's Christian Temperance Union, one of their another one of their like agenda points was banning the sale of tobacco. Huh. And it's just like, it's always been fascinating to me because like, I, I think I can put myself in the mindset of like late 19th century, early 20th century and understand what their issues with alcohol were and like what, what they were seeing is wrong. This sure. was a time when there was nothing safe about working in a factory. There was nothing safe about like working in the United States. So when you add you that should probably issue, be sober, <laughs> you, when you add that issue of like alcoholism, like it, it's obviously just like going to cause issues, but then they're mm-hmm. like blinding themselves to the issue of tobacco they're like no this doesn't hurt my kids this doesn't give my kids lung cancer smokeless smokeless equals harmless (laughs) that was always just like like a joke in high school that smokeless tobacco is harmless (laughs) well and some of it too does speak to the sort of the general um polarization of movements and it's like you can be against this and you can promote it but should it be federally illegal legal i think that's a that's what this these big questions kind of revolve around is, is that the job of government to protect you from vices or to protect you from yourself? To what extent should that be the federal government? Should that be the state government? Should that be the municipal government? You know, um, there, there's kind of very big civic questions, I think, this that are just, kind of behind all of this that we definitely don't have time to get into right. today and we don't want to take a stance because we want you to listen to the podcast. This is just a, a goofy <laughs> a goofy what if because we were talking about like what if a judge like just read to the 18th Amendment and like stopped. I yeah. wonder <laughs> I wonder like if since the passage of the 21st amendment if there has ever been a case where they cite the 18th. <laughs> yeah, just to see no, if they like, can get yeah. away with it. Like, after, <laughs> like see how the, closely the they're 21st reading. like essentially like it, it yeah. vetoes the 18th, but I wonder if in like any legal literature it's been yeah. cited. Like just I am a contextualist as the text says. <laughs> <laughs> but if you keep uh, no, 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 the text says, but if you just keep it that text says. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, any lawyer listeners out there, feel free to chime in. We we have questions we need answered. Oh, we would love to have a lawyer on the podcast to just ask all of our goofy questions. <laughs> that would too. be good. Specifically a constitutional lawyer, please. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we've kind of uh, debated a lot of things about prohibition, so we'll tie it up here. But thanks again for everybody for tuning in to another episode of Historians and Lederhosen. Uh, hope you enjoyed learning about this topic, this prohibition topic. It's always fascinating. Like I said, we, we love to talk about it, talk about the little niche things that people don't normally recognize. Um, so please subscribe, leave us a review. We really are listening. Um, we take that feedback to heart and we try to implement it in our podcast. And if you do 
both of those things, we'll be able to continue making these podcasts and be able to spread our history and share our history with everyone else, to the visitors of Frankmuth. So thank you again, and I'll, I'll feed you to say. Say.